I learned that every dish that I made was a dance step. And it took me about eight months to figure that out. And I made a carrot salad. And I didn't think about the salad that I was making. I thought about the movement. And then it just occurred to me, like all of these dishes are dance steps. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Rick Martinez, a chef, YouTube creator, and author of the incredible new book, Mi Cocina, Recipes and Rapture from My Kitchen in Mexico. Now, I've known Rick for a minute and followed his career at Bon Appetit and later at Food 52. He was putting out some of the, I would say, cooler videos in, in food media, and, I, and I, I watched them. I liked them. But I really got to know Rick recently during our conversation in the studio. We talked about what food was like in his hometown of Austin, Texas and how he would switch careers. He lived a very madman existence, per Rick's uh, words, but would drop everything to work at ABC Kitchen in New York. And that's when things got interesting. Rick began working in food editorial at the Food Network and later BA, where he would work in and out of the test kitchen and on and off the camera. Rick's career at BA was rich and layered, and we talk about it a bit. We also talk about his book and how it required him and some friends to drive all around the country of Mexico and exploring the regional cuisines of Jalisco and Oaxaca, the Yucatan, the border regions, and Puebla. It's quite the journey, and we talk about what a journey it was and you know how do you make a book that blends both recipes and travel. It's one of the tougher needles to thread in cookbook writing, and I think he does a wonderful job. We also talk about the recipes and some of the specific dishes that he's really cracked the code for in his own personal way. I love this book so much. It's one of my favorite books of the spring. Here's my conversation with Rick Martinez. Rick Martinez, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I've had a copy of Mikosina for about a month and a half now, and I just can't stop looking at it. <laughs> it's just, it's a gorgeous book. We say that a, a bit here, but I just truly, when you page through it, you're going on a journey, right? A journey yeah. of your Mexico, right? Your yes. experience of Mexico, right? Yes. Tell me a little bit about how you came to the conclusion that you needed this to be the format, that you were going to make it like a road trip, 30,000 miles, I believe you, you covered. There's two things. I believe that Americans love Mexican food, but their palate and their repertoire is limited by their awareness of food in Mexico. So everybody makes the same five dishes over and over again. That's what you find at restaurants. It's what you find on Taco Tuesdays. It's tacos, enchiladas, burritos, nachos, and quesadillas. And even as a recipe developer, when someone approaches me for an assignment, it's like, we need you to make another version of one of those five things. And that, is, I mean, it's, it's, it's silly. It's a huge mm-hmm. country. It's so incredibly di- diverse. Uh, There's so many different indigenous peoples that, that uh, you know, lived in Mexico originally. And there's so many uh, 
you know, immigrants. There's so many people that that migrated in and out of the country that created this tapestry of cuisine, um, also based on the climate and the geography and what existed there. And so I wanted to explore that, uh, not only for the book, but also for myself. Mm-hmm. And And part of that is me having grown up, born in, in Texas, uh, grown up in Austin. My parents were both born in Texas. My grandparents came from northern Mexico, Torreon and Monterrey. Um, and and we were assigned the title of Mexican by the people mm. around us, right? So it's it's the, the 70s and 80s in Texas. And because I'm brown, I am Mexican. And you go around believing that you are the poster family for a country, even though none of us mm-hmm. grew up there. My parents had been to like into the interior of Mexico. I had not. So I only knew like Laredo and, and some border towns. And, but you know, that's like, I'm, I'm Mexican and I, you know, if somebody has a question about Mexico or frankly, Latin America, I'm the person that you ask. And when I went down, the first time that I went into central Mexico, I was in, I was probably like 18 and I was like, this is nothing like what we ate. Mm. The people don't look anything like my family. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't understand. I don't recognize any of this. None of this is familiar. And yet my entire life I have been branded, you know, Mexican. And so a big part of this journey for me personally was finding out who am I? Where do I come from? Where is the, what is the origin of the food of my family? Rick, I appreciate you sharing that story. I think it's um, it's a great reminder um, for a couple of things. But first, it's a reminder that Mexico um, is as regional, the cuisine, as countries like Italy and France. We, we celebrate in food media those two countries, but we do not celebrate the regionality of Mexico, and we'll get into that. But also your, your, your upbringing in, in Austin, it sounds... There, it was there. There was moments of ugly truth when, 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 when encountering racism there, and, and I'm I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Did that um, dynamic affect the way you looked at food and your own heritage as you grew as an adult and grew into a food professional? You know, I think at, at first, you know, as a child, you're just confused because you know, I thought that we ate the way that every. American family ate, right? And so my mother um, was an amazing cook, and she bought uh, the 1963 edition of the Betty Crocker cookbook when she got married, and she learned how to make, you know, very classic mid-century American dishes like lobster thermidor mm. and jello, perhaps, and jello molds, <laughs> molds, yes, <laughs> um, Waldorf salad jello mold. Ooh, shout out Waldorf's mm-hmm. great, <laughs> yeah. But in jello, you haven't lived until you've had that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but then at the same time, you know, made food from our family, made Tex-Mex dishes, made Texan dishes, so chicken fried steak and and smoked briskets and things like that. But I just thought that that was what everybody ate. So it's sort of, it was a surprise to me when I found out that other people weren't eating tamales for, mm. for Christmas um, or capirotada for Lent. Um, and then, you know, like growing older, I think, I think there was this desire to look down at Tex-Mex food and and to me, it is a cuisine like any other regional cuisine. It is, it's real. It's what people 
eat. It's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it should be celebrated. But I think what is important is that it's not Mexican. And that that simple truth is another reason why I wanted to write this book because Calmex and Tex-Mex and any other version mm-hmm. of of uh of Mexican-like cuisine in the United States is not Mexican food. Well, you have a chapter called the Northern Cuisine, mm-hmm. which which you're you're making its own cuisine and you're delineating it from Tex-Mex, as you're saying. Tex-Mex is not Mexican cuisine. What is Northern Cuisine then? If you're if you're centering it in Mexico, so Northern Mexican cuisine. I mean, it's a it's a vast area, but yeah. you know, it's dominated by um, you know more arid land. Um, there are places uh, great many states, in fact, that um, are known for cattle ranches. And they do, Chihuahua and Sonora, have incredible tasting beef. And part of that is um, the diet of of the cattle. Uh, there's a lot of minerals in the soil that uh, are then, you know, that are eaten by the cows through the vegetation, and it just makes this stellar quality beef. So you have beef, then you also have milk, cheese, dairy. There's a large uh, a population of Mennonites um, mm. That live in northern Mexico. Did not know that. Wow. That actually created cheeses, and so queso menonita um, or queso chihuahua is like really big. Um, corn does not grow very easily in that area because of the climate, and so wheat does, and therefore flour tortillas are mm-hmm. king in that area. So you've got like this whole like this all of these different ingredients come together, and you have the the carne asadas, the arrechera. Um, the flour tortilla quesadillas, tacos norteños, um, yeah. you know, nopales, uh, the, which are the cactus paddles. So all of yeah. those things create this really unique cuisine that is very different than what you would find in the more tropical states yeah. of the South. Not unlike you would discuss northern Italy and having a dairy-centric um, population and, and cuisine and, you know, of the South, which is Italian-American right. cuisine. Um, let's back up. I want to hear a little bit about your your history and, and your, your career because it's, it's really – it was unknown to me until I read your book. But you worked in advertising well before you uh, entered food as a profession. Tell, what, what, what was like the Mad Men lifestyle like for you? Because you have a really extensive – it could have been that and you're done and you're like a really good at advertising. What right. was that like for you? Um, it's funny that you say Mad Men. So I actually <laughs> did work at BBDO, which is yeah. the agency that that show is based off of. And it was, in <laughs> fact, very much like that, even, you know, 40 years after yeah. the show actually took place. You know, it was fun. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I was good at it. And I made a lot of money. And, you know, like all of those all of those Mad Men agency tropes <laughs> to an extent are real and, and I've lived them, um, and I enjoyed it. But I also think that there, there are not a lot of older people in, um, in advertising, you know, it's a, it's a game for the young Mm -hmm. and I was aware of that. And so everyone I knew, including myself had an exit strategy and, you know, and to be honest, like I had worked in advertising for uh, 16 years total, and you know, towards the end of that, I'd done everything that I wanted to do. I'd made Super Bowl spots. I'd launched big brands. Um, I, you know, like I ushered in a new era of of digital um, and and text marketing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to I I wanted to do something new. And and it's interesting because food was always a big passion of mine. And my parents were very adamant about me going to college and going this professional route. 
And despite the fact that I really wanted to go to the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, and and go food. And every year, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. Every year that I was at UT, in the summer, I would reach out to CIA and I would interview. I would go through that process. And my parents were like, come on, just finish, just get your degree. And then you can uh, You like, wanted to leave college. You wanted to leave UT to go to CIA. Wow. Yeah. So you might not even made it to advertising. Wow. No. Amazing. But I think that, you know, I... I gained so much valuable learning from my days in advertising. You know, like I I understand how corporate America works. I understand the art of pitching ideas and and winning people over, presenting to big groups, convincing big organizations to give you a lot of money to do some scary marketing. <laughs> um and and that was that those were all skills that, you know, by the time I got to BA and then certainly by the time that I was ready to to pitch a book to mm-hmm. um, to the publishing company to hear, uh, you know, like it was it was important. I mean, and I and I was even told by the um, uh, the Penguin team that this my proposal was incredible because of all of the the nods to marketing and research that were in it. You know, they could hand this this document to a sales team. And they were salivating. Yeah. Because pi- I, I had like this airtight, you know, business case for why this book needed to exist. The pitch was down. But I wanted I, I I'm clinging on to the idea that you were leaving an industry for the young to go work the line at ABC Kitchen, which <laughs> which, you know, not for the young or not for the old either. Like definitely no, a young no. man's game working the line at a busy Manhattan restaurant. What was your time like at ABC Kitchen and learning uh this this kind of brand new set of crazy tra- tasks and and skills? It was the most humbling experience of my entire life. Uh, You know, so like I was making six figures. I had SVP in my title and a brand new apartment in Chelsea. And I gave all of that up. And I I, I didn't even start making minimum wage. I was a free intern before there, like before that is not allowed or was not allowed. Um, So I worked four months for free and I... My boss was a 20-year-old kid who legitimately knew more than I did about food. Humbling. Humbling. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I'm like – and I had decided to go into food when I was 38 because I thought my life would end at 40 and I would be physically um, unable to withstand the rigors of food. And so I was like, either you do this now before 40 or you're just going to die with this regret. Mm. Um, obviously, <laughs> I, I managed pretty well post 40. But you did um, okay. Yeah, you kept yourself in shape. Yeah. yeah. You're doing okay. Um, but um, but that was a, it was a big deal. And I was the oldest person on the line. I was old. You know, I, I think uh, um, Dan Kluger and I are uh, the same age. <laughs> um, but you know, it was it was hard. And it was also hard because, you know, my entire life had been spent at a desk. And so, you know, I'm used to standing or sitting at a desk and, and writing decks, PowerPoint presentations. A and nice desk, like an air-on chair, I'm sure. Exactly. A very yeah. nice desk. Exactly. Like, I'm sure, very ergonomically <laughs> designed, yeah. And now, all of a sudden, I'm on the line, and I, I could not... I did not understand it. I did not understand how to make myself go faster. It is... I, I learned that every dish that I made was a dance step. And it took me about eight months to figure that out. And on the day that it came to me, like I had made, I was making, I was at Garde Manger at ABC Kitchen and I made a carrot salad. And I didn't think about 
the salad that I was making. I thought about the movement. And so extending my arm over here to reach for the the hot roasted carrots and then grabbing a plate and putting the greens in the center and then arranging. And then – and I just I, – I just imagined this as a dance step. And, and then it just occurred to me like all of these dishes are dance steps. And, and the way that you gain efficiency and speed is you – you, you you maximize the efficiency of the move. So instead of reaching way over here for a crouton, you put the crouton closer to Close your body, closer to the other ingredients yeah. in that yeah, salad. Yeah, yeah. So now you have a very tight dance move. <laughs> Rick, were you happy in that moment when you when you landed the dance move? I love the metaphor, by the way. Oh, were, were you happy? I was I was elated because previous to that, I had been uh, so Garmage gets hit first. So when you have yeah. fifty customers walk in the door. They're going to order the salads first. Especially ABC Kitchen. Nice salads. Yeah. Very good salads there. So everybody else in the line is like, you know, smoking cigarettes and (laughs) and laying around. And meanwhile, my ticket machine is just going insane. And I had gotten bailed out by one of the Sioux. I was like completely in the weeds. And thankfully, John helped me out. But at the end of that first rush, he had blown through all my me's for the whole night. Oh, shit. And I spent the entire rest of the night just trying to catch up on, like, yeah. chopped herbs and, and and chopped greens. And I just vowed at that moment. I was like, I am never doing this again. He is never going to come back here and blow through all my me's. And then that's that next day is when, like, the dance step just occurred to me. And I was like, I get this now. So the me's, for anyone not, who doesn't know, it's, like, the components for the dish. But, like, he blew through the me's because it was just um, – too many customers and you didn't prep enough? Is that what it was? Or I mean, my feeling was is that he was just like throwing shit on the plate, oh, you know? So like, got it. so, you know, like I was putting a, you know, a pinch of herb on the top ah. to garnish and he's grabbing a handful and like throwing it down. So we got all the salads out, but like all of my mise was gone. Yeah, all I my, see. Yeah. I have to ask you about BA uh, and the way you um, entered the BA world because, uh, you know, we had Andy Barragani on here a few episodes ago, and he told me about the tryout he had for Carla Lally Music, who's now your co-host on a podcast. But, you know, his, he went through a pretty great story we'll link to in the show notes about how he tried out. How did you end up at BA, and did you have to try out as well? I did. Okay. Um, so I was actually working – I was freelance at Food Network, uh, which I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed working in television. But you're always cooking someone else's food um, unless you have your own show. And I didn't think that I was going to work in print um, because, you know, like print was dying. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I got the opportunity to go to BA and um, and create my own food, create my own voice uh, as a recipe developer. So that was really appealing to me. So I, um, Carl and I had been talking and um, it was a two-part process. The first was um, the editorial component. And so she had... Uh, she had asked for recipe pitches for a particular issue. I put together all my pitches. Um, she asked sort of a, I don't know, I, I, think, I think it was a question that they were pondering that they didn't have the answer to. And, um, you know, they, they had had a dish on Instagram that had blown up. Mm. And so this is 2014. Kale was involved, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and they couldn't they couldn't work out why it had it had blown up or how to like figure out what the next big blow up dish was going to be and so um, there was a question about that and then there was the the cooking component of it and so 
this was right before Thanksgiving. I went in on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving and was there a good probably 10 or 11 hours um, given just an insane amount of food to cook through. And and by cook through, like I thought it was just going to be like recipe testing, but there was a there was a section called RSVP. And it was, uh, you know, I ate this amazing dish in this rest, tiny restaurant. And, and Make it for me. Exactly. Yeah. And so the chefs will send you this recipe that, you know, for feeds 50 people. And then you have to, you as the recipe developer, have to scale it down for a home cook uh, with home equipment and for, you know, four people. So I was given one of those. And <laughs> wow. Yeah. Scaled up and scaled down. It's it, tough. Man. It was insane. Um, yeah. So anyway, all of that, like I had to like style food. I had to test recipes. I had to figure that out, the RSVP thing out. And um, it was a lot. You know, it was a lot. Also, like, you know, we were in Times Square at that point. Oh, the, yeah. The kitchens at Times Square were horrible. They were individual galley kitchens. And so imagine eight galley kitchens in a row and each person, you know, does like their their own sort of organization. And so like, I'm looking for cardamom and I'm like, okay, well, it's not in my kitchen. I have to go dig through Claire's kitchen. And then I have to go look in Allison's kitchen. And it's like, this is horrible. Like it, I spent so much time just yeah, searching. Yeah, it just was disorganized and, and it wasn't the airy kitchen that you appeared on in the TV show, yeah, the, the web yeah. series. But I want to hear about your move to to Mexico. And and when did you decide to move to Mexico full time, full time? And was this around the time you signed the book contract or was it before? Like what what was the kind of timeline there? I'm yeah. curious. So um, I signed the contract in 2019, in the summer of 2019. And I had zero desire to leave New York City. I'd been living in New York for 20 years. I got here in 01. And, you know, for me, I love the city, but I'd also been through so many things. So 9-11, Sandy, uh, uh, blackouts. Gentrification. Gentrification. (laughs) Um, So, you know, like all of those things just sort of, I don't know, melded me to this idea. I felt like I was wedded to the city forever. Um, And... So for me, the book was a job. It was a research project. It was very personal, but it was still a job that I would come back home to New York to. And um, my original plan was to be done with all of the research by uh, March of 20, then shoot the book in Mexico City, the food for the book, and then we turn in the manuscript, and then it would have been published in 21, spring of 21. So only Mexico City, and simply to do the shoots... That was it. I was going to travel. I was going to, I was still going to travel the whole country, but like I wanted, I figured I would get um, a nice Airbnb in Mexico City (laughs) and, and just shoot it there because it's an easy flight from New York. Uh, So that was the plan. And then I was in the Northern States in March of 20. I was about to fly back to Austin for South by Southwest. Uh, And then from there, I was going to New York to shoot video for two weeks at BA and Food Network. And then South by got canceled. And then all of my jobs in New York got canceled. And I remember I called my dad and I was like, I mean, I don't I don't know what to do. Like I don't know if I should go back. Like, is it should I go back to the US in case something happens and I need, mm-hmm. you know, insurance and I need whatever? Or, or should I just stay here where it seems safer? I don't know, in a weird way. Cause like and also I don't want to get trapped in my little Harlem apartment, you know. And so in the end, I decided, no, I'm not going back to the city. Um, you know, I, I, 
after 9-11, I was stuck in my apartment for, you know, a week and a half, and that that was torturous enough. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to have to lock down somewhere, I want to be on the beach. Smart. And, yeah, wise, wise decision, Rick. Yeah, and good work. There's just something that, like, <laughs> it just, it calms me. It just, it's... It's what I needed at, at that moment. And I was in the middle of the desert. And so the Mazatlan, which was on my research plan, um, I was only going to be there for about 24 hours. My God, only 24 hours. Wow, that's incredible. And so wow. I, th- I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to go there. Like, it's the first major city on the open Pacific Ocean under Baja. And um, it was an eight-hour drive from where I was. I was like, I'll go there. I'll stay there a few weeks. Pandemic will pass. And then I'll just keep going. I got there on March 19, 2020, and then I never left. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And you write it's such a tribute to Mazzalan, your new home in the book. And it's really opened my eyes to that, to the Pacific coast of Mexico. And you really, it, it seems you genuinely have fallen in love with that part of Mexico. Do you have roots there now? Do you have, like, friends there? I mean, you're talking about, you're telling a story that you just you just showed up, like, yeah. hey, I'm here. I mean, now I do. <laughs> uh, you know, two and a half years later. At the time, I knew no one. I mean, it was... You know, that that was a really hard, I mean, it was a decision that I made, and I think it was the right decision, but it was a very difficult thing to live in a city during lockdown where you knew no one. And that was my choice, right? I chose to to not go to my country of birth, to stay in the foreign country, and to move to a city where I knew no one. And, you know, like, my my only human contact was this, was my Airbnb host, And we created this little food exchange. Like, you know, in the beginning of lockdown, everybody was scared and nobody wanted to get close or, you know, anything like that. So the Airbnb was uh, a Spanish-style hacienda. It had four apartments, but I was the only one there. And there was a big courtyard in the middle. And she would come very early in the morning to, like, water the plants and clean the courtyard and then leave before I woke up so that we wouldn't have to be near each other. But she would always, every morning, she would bring me fresh coconuts, papaya, mango, fresh fish. All local from their region. This is the type of, this is what's growing. This is what is growing in that area. Like she actually grew uh, coconuts and mangoes and papaya. And she'd bring those. And if she went to the the, uh, seafood market, she would bring whatever she was buying. So I would wake up. I would go eat that. And then I started developing the recipes of the book. So I started, I would go to the market, buy all my stuff, make the food, and then whatever I had left over, I would package up for her. And in the evening, she would come back and get that, and that was her her dinner. Oh, my goodness. What a great deal for both of you. Yeah. And so we did that for four months, and and without really speaking. Like, we would text on WhatsApp, but, yeah. like, it was just this food exchange that existed, and that was my, that was my sole human contact for four months. I want to talk about the book, some of the specifics of the book, the regional elements, but I wanted to kind of get a sense of, you know, it's a real travel book. And we have a lot of authors um, on the podcast, and we publish a lot of authors in and out of Penguin Random House. Listen, it's not easy to do a book that's a road book, but you've done it. How did you negotiate the travel of this book, the research that required? You took so many trips. You've traveled so many miles. It was hard, and it was— Yeah, I'm trying to say, like, this is not easy. It's easier said than done. No, it was like—I mean, even just figuring out the logistics of it. Like, you know, do I rent a car? Do I buy a car? Do I fly? Do I bus? Like, what—you know, figuring that out. Yeah, totally. In the end, I bought a used uh, Nissan Versa in Mexico City, mainly because uh, all of the Uber drivers drove Versas. And so I was like, well, you know what? If it's good enough for them in Mexico City, then it's probably going to be a reliable car for me out and the, the, the open. Um, so I bought a car and 
and I just started driving. And I wanted to follow, like at that moment, you know, it was um, the the end of fall moving into um, December. So I wanted to go down south and then move up as as the climate started to warm because I didn't want to be in the desert like in, in the heat. So I was just like following, um, you know, the the like a really moderate temperature, uh, which also I did not know until this happened, but I was also following um, citrus and mango season okay. as it came up. So I was in, I basically stayed within citrus and mango season for like eight months, which was incredible. So I just got to enjoy it's all that. Cra- it's remarkable to think that there's eight months of citrus in Mexico and it does rotate like that or shift. Yeah. And it just like goes, you know, from south to north. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what I would do, and I uh, I hired a friend of mine that I'd worked with here in, in New York at uh, Food Network, and she did a lot of desk research for me. And so basically collecting everything that had been written um, about a particular uh, state and and the cities within. And then once I had that, I was I would narrow like the the amount of cities that I could travel to um, logistically, you know, not because mm-hmm. it was also like negotiating like how much time can I spend in each region? Um, you know, how long is it going to take me to drive from point A to point B, trying to figure all that out. And then so I, I would make my list of of cities within that. Then I would make the list of all the dishes by city and by region that I had to try while I was there. You know, and so in the beginning, it was just very much like that. It was just like lists of places. And then I learned as I, st- I always stayed at Airbnbs um, and I found that the Airbnb owners, um, once I told them what I was doing, were like, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so who just got married and the guy that made the the uh, the virya what? for his wedding is insane and he's going to teach what you how to make What a smart level of reporting there. Really great. And so that so it just became I mean it, it was it became harder because I had to abandon this idea of a very regimented trip because every city that I went to, I was meeting people in these tiny little places and then I would just be like, okay, I'm gonna go over here. It's like fifty miles outside of what I had planned to go make Viria with this guy, you know, and and some. Do you have a photographer with you for most of the trip too? We're documenting it. It was all me. Yeah. You know, my my plan pre-COVID was uh, Ren Fuller, my photographer Mm -hmm. and I, we're going to do reportage of of the country, like my favorite places. But then at the time that we shot, we couldn't because COVID was like resurging again. So... I want to get into some of the specific uh, regions because I think first off, to start, the Yucatan, I feel like you give... um, you give a lot of respect for the Yucatan, and I believe a lot of, um, especially East Coast Americans and Midwestern Americans, know the Yucatan for vaca- as a vacation destination, and less about the cuisine. So I wanted to hear your take on what the Yucatan cuisine is, and why you know maybe we should go there or think about it as f- for food. Right. I think part of and part of the reason why I wanted to lean into it. I mean, a I really love it, and I also think it's so distinct because yeah. it is so bright and so spicy and so fresh. Um, but also I think because there's so many tourists there, you know, they're ordering salmon, which doesn't exist in that part of the world, mm-hmm. right? So this mm-hmm. salmon is being flown from the North. Norway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it's just like, I don't know, it, it, it breaks my heart because yeah. you've got this incredible seafood that is literally like, you know, 20 feet away from yeah. your, your resort door. Yeah. Um, and yet you're flying the seafood in from, you know, who knows where. Yeah. And so, so that was part of the reason, but you know, like the, 
citrus, for example. There are markets that specialize in nothing but citrus. Things, I had no idea what these things were. I know the local names of them. I don't know, like, I mean, it was sort of like trying to figure out, looking up an image on on Google, trying to, like, match it with, like, a scientific name based on, <laughs> on a description of flavor and then my, you know, personal experience at, like, tasting it. And there's just sort of impossible. And so I was like, you know what, I don't, I don't need to do that. Like, all I need to know is, like, all of these things exist and they're amazing. I can never write a recipe with any of this stuff because, you know. It's it, very, very no, difficult to source in the favorable file of this version of, of, a, of, an, of an orange. Right. And also, what would I even call for? Like, yeah. I don't even really know the name yeah. other than, like, what it's called in this little community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then I was just like, okay, this dish is made with these things, and I'm going to try and using oranges, grapefruit, lemons, and limes, try and replicate those flavors by just, you know, using some ratio of those juices together. And that's kind of how I, I put together all of those dishes. Uh, but smoke is a really important part of, uh, or flavor in the Yucatan. Mm -hmm. There are two types of trees that grow that are typically used. It's sort of like mesquite and hickory or oak here, or, you know, in the U.S. for barbecue. Um, you know, they impart such a distinctive flavor and you'll go to a town and you know that this is the wood that's being used in this town and you can smell it as you drive in and then you go to sort of the the local barbecue or the pitmaster and and they're smoking you know ribs and and sausages and but also like burying their their beans in these pits and tamales and um, and whole uh, animals and that also pick up all of those flavors not only from the wood but also the minerals in the earth Let's talk about Oaxaca. I think Oaxaca gets a lot of press, travel, food, you know, business. I mean, it's part of um, this this identity of Mexico that's maybe even separate from a lot of other regions. But I would like to get your take on on Oaxaca and and why um, we are all so drawn to it right now. I think because it's one of the places that is largely untouched by um, the influence of of other immigrants or. Uh, invaders, conquistadores, whatever you want to call them. Um, there's a lot of controversy in Mexico about Europeans, you know, invading and what they did. And, and I, I agree, there were horrible atrocities, atrocities that were mm -hmm. committed. Um, but, you know, anytime people migrate um, and they layer their food and their culture and their techniques on what are already exists and with what uh, uh, produce and um, proteins are available to them in that area, a new cuisine emerges. Mm -hmm. Oaxaca is one of those areas where it's largely untouched. And so you have a, almost a native cuisine. And so these chiles, these uh, uh, vegetables and fruits and herbs and spices that only exist in certain mountain villages in Oaxaca are used to create these moles um, that are insanely beautiful. And, and you know, it's, it's actually, you know, I've been to Oaxaca many times and I, I absolutely love the food in that region. And I sort of went on this quest, like, I'm going to find the bad mole. Like, surely <laughs> there must be like, there must be like on right. the side of the highway, some guy is making something that just isn't It's that a good. great way to do a cookbook, like <laughs> yeah. a travel book. Like, let's find the bad stuff just to like make it the baseline. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I couldn't do it. Like, I mean, That's literally, great. even like at gas stations, you know, 
the I think the, I think it comes down to if you're going to put the effort into making a pipian or a mole or tamales, like that's not a quick dish, right? You're probably not doing it because you want to make a lot of money to like some guy that's like getting gas on the highway, <laughs> right? You're doing it because you love it, because you're good at it, because you want to share that food with someone. And and the result is that food is really delicious. Yeah. It's a home of mezcal as well. And so how much does mezcal and the production of mezcal uh, play into the kind of cuisine of, of Oaxaca? And uh, does it um, overshadow Oaxacan cuisine a little bit, the, the idea that we're so, we're so interested in mezcal? Or is it just symbiotic? No, it's not. I mean, I think – it. You know, to to Americans, they might think that, you know, it's it's trendy and it might upstage the food. But, you know, to, to people that live in the country, it's just, you know, like, I mean, think about France, right? Like, so you might be near a vineyard and that might be sort of top of mind relative to like what is produced in that area. But it's an accompaniment to a meal, right? And I think that's the way that mezcal is viewed, you know, oftentimes. Like, I mean, there's some mezcalas that are like really, really good, but um, – I also f- believe and, and discovered that there are a lot of people that pair mezcal with with food. And I happen to agree that that is the best pairing because, you know, when a mezcal grows in the same earth with, you know, the corn and the chiles and the beans, you, there's a terroir that exists. If it grows together, it goes together. Completely. You know, ruin yeah. cooking right there. And it's just, yeah. it's beautiful. Those, the, the, the flavor combinations are insanely delicious. We could talk about Chiapas, we could talk about Jalisco, we could talk about um, more of the border regions, but I want to talk about Mexico City as the final region. Um, you know, it's not a Mexico City book. It's actually lighter on Mexico City than than many other books, and we will talk about the publishing of, Mexi- of, of Mexican cookbooks. But what is me- happening in Mexico City right now for our listeners? Um, it's definitely a place to visit just for art and for all sorts of types of restaurants. But for your, I want to get your take on it though. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. it. I love it. I love it. It's so great. It is so amazing. I think, you know, to me, and thankfully, I feel like it has undergone this really beautiful renaissance, um, probably within now, like the last 10 years. And um, I think part of it is just, there are a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s that, I think before before 40 years ago, I think Mexican cooks especially and, and artists as well didn't really believe that their craft, that their art, that their products would necessarily command attention or a higher price point on a world stage. And so, you know, in the early 2000s in Mexico City, fine dining was European cuisine and, and, and French primarily. And, you know, then... You had places like Pujol come around and started to change that. And now we live in a time where people, you know, the younger people in Mexico City are traveling. They're, they're, they're learning about new cultures and new foods. And, and they're, they're taking those insights and learning and, and, and kind of just reshaping it, rethinking it with a Mexican mind, ingenuity and creativity with Mexican ingredients. And so... You know, there's a lot of bread happening, really, really good artisanal bread made with uh, um, Mexican wheat um, and, you know, pizzas. But also like it's just the reimagining of a lot of these, uh, you know, different ingredients and different different products. And I just I love I love being able to just walk down the street and it's a lot like New York, right? Like there's the 
because it's so competitive, you know, people are always trying to what up each other. They're always trying to do something new. You've got to be at the top of your game if you want to be successful. And there's just that energy that's like so beautiful. And of course, you've got the the taco culture in Mexico City, which is similar to the, the pizza culture here, the slice culture in New York City. Um, but I think for any visitor who's ever been, it's like, there are as many taquerias and taco trucks as slice shops in New York. It's like a mind-blowing experience. And they're like, I don't know. I mean, I, f- I find that the tacos are much more, much different than slices here. I mean, like there's there's styles, differences in styles. But, you mm-hmm. know, like I think the flavor profile, like there's always like the pizza margarita and there's also always the pepperoni. Um I think in the the taquerias, you get so much variation in ingredients, and then certainly in the salsas is where you can really put your, like, spin and personal sazon. the salsas, yeah, truly. Thank you for correcting it. It's like a good course correction because, yeah, the slice joint is kind of like a monolith here, you know, and and Mexico City tacos are much different. Yeah, and I think – but it's it's – they're beautiful. Like, I mean, I I was actually – I was stuck there. I missed my connection flight from uh, Mazatlan to – to New York. And so I was there overnight and I called up a friend of mine and I was like, let's go eat. And we just like crawled (laughs) around. Um, But also like, you know, this is a great example. Another great example. There was a, there was a Mexican couple that was really into Japanese um, uh, culture and cuisine. And they decided we're going to start making sake. And so, but, you know, but like to pair it with Mexican food. And so Mm -hmm. they, they Mm -hmm. worked with, uh, um, uh, a Japanese master to create the sake and but to pair with Mexican food and I was like that's that's amazing and it's it is very different and it pairs with very spicy very uh, like a lot of chiles a lot of like really aggressive flavors and it holds its own I have to ask you about Mexican cookbooks because I feel uh, Mexican cookbooks have been underpublished like there are just not enough Mexican cookbooks and I mean do you agree with that and like your book is is I'm going to say you're going to be the start of a new generation of books coming from Mexico. I hope. Yeah. Um, that is what I wanted to do. You know, and I, you brought this up earlier. I, when I, I pitched the book, I talked about Italian cuisine in the U.S. 40 years ago, right? So it was, it was monolithic. It was red sauce and pasta. And then you had authors exploring Tuscan and Northern Italian and Sicilian. And all of a sudden we had the vocabulary to start talking about different regional Italian dishes. And that's what I wanted to do with this book. And I think I think part of it is this box that publishing puts us in, right? We are asked to create authentic, you know, whatever cuisine. <laughs> that word. That oh, word. that word. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and even now, like, it's still like, it's the highest praise that I can get on my book. Like, no one will ever say that it's it's passionate or creative. They'll say it's the most authentic you can find. And it's, it is a disservice to me. It is a disservice to the book. And, you know, and, and honestly, like it's, I don't believe in the word authentic unless there is a specific point of origin for a dish. So for example, chiles and nogada, that was made by Mexican nuns, um, for the signing of the independence uh, of the treaty for independence, uh, mm. uh for, with Spain. And so that dish had a point in time. And so you can say that there is an authentic version of that dish based on what the done. Because the there's a real time made. stamp with it, right. which most foods don't have a time stamp. Right. right. And this idea of authenticity, I think, comes from the marketing of books that are not American, not wholly American or white American food. And so you have to qualify it so that 
buyer, potential buyers of these books know that they're getting the best, the most authentic, most real. And this, this food is my food, right? It's not like, it's not like anybody else's food. It is, they are the dishes that I ate, but I did not, I did not take any recipes. I did not try and replicate any of these dishes. These are the dishes prepared the way I wanted them to be prepared. And also the way are that like, I wanted to make them accessible to an American home cook. So those, that just makes it very, very different. So these aren't authentic recipes, whatever that means. They're authentic to me. But you're tapping into a zeitgeist because there is a, you know, a period that you made these, these journeys. It was like 2020 to 2021. So right. to me, that's powerful because you're saying it's Rick Martinez's book, but it's also the zeitgeist because you're, you're capturing time, yeah. what's happening in a, in a place. And I think when we look back at journalism and scholarship, it's like, okay, well, that was the moment in time that Rick was doing these these travels. And I also think that, you know, part of the, and I experienced this myself, right, when, before, when I agreed to do the this book, um, and I signed the contract, it was a very different book. Like, I agreed to lean more into that authentic. And it's hard. You know, it's not, you have to pull yourself out of the equation because you're trying to represent the country and not misrepresent the people that made the food for you. And... And so, you know, you do so hard. That's impossible. It is. And and it's also not fun. And, you know, and I think a lot of a lot of Mexican cookbooks that are out there that that claim to be very authentic and real. These authors do a lot of research to find out, you know, this this clinical end all be all. This is the dish. This is the way that it's interpreted by multiple people in aggregate across this region. And therefore, this is the almost the scientific version of that dish. And so it may not have their own flair. It may not have like the personal love that makes it interesting. They might be a little boring, Rick. They might gonna be a little say bit that. Yeah. going to put that word out there. Yeah. And that was the book that I was tr- started to try and write. And then I said, fuck it. I'm not going to do that anymore. Respect. I think course correction is all about book publishing and they go hand in hand. Um, this is, to be clear to the listener, this is nothing to do with boring because it's furthest from boring. But I have to ask you about Diana Kennedy because, you know, we've written about her. Uh, on taste, I mean, when she donated her or sold her books to a library, we have a great piece, and I'll link to in the show notes. Um, but the Kennedy uh, canon, um, how do you how do you kind of uh, negotiate it, or how do you think about it? I mean, you know, when I was young, I was watching Diana Kennedy and Rick Bayless, and they were my favorite shows on PBS. Um, you know, as a teenager, and they were my only real source of information about Mexico. But as a Mexican-American boy in the uh, 80s and 90s, I was resentful. Why is this British woman and this white man from Oklahoma, why are they the authorities in Mexican cuisine and culture, right? Why am I learning about my heritage through the travels of these two people? And, And I had a great deal of resentment about that. You know, and I, I remember as a as an 18-year-old boy thinking, I'm going to be that one day. I'm going to be Diana Kennedy because it's not fair. It's not fair that she gets to represent my people. As a young boy, you thought that. Wow. I did. And, you know, like I, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten about it until I got, you know, like out of advertising and then and moved into food. And then I was like, you know, I really – I need to write this book. Like it's it's there um, and it had just been like, it had been waiting. It had been waiting for the right moment. And, and the moment was, you know, 2019 into, into now. 
Um, but I also think that, you know, like, I, I appreciate and I respect the work that they did. But I also think that, you know, there is something slightly disturbing about the approach to it, you know, and I was very careful about, I didn't want anyone to think that I was trying to take recipes or, you know, as a recipe developer, I am, that is my currency. And so my intellectual property, my capital is all about what I can create and produce. And, and I know Diana fully admits, you know, in, in all of her books and, and her documentary, I went out to go and, and I had an anthropological approach to this research and I collected data, right? Imagine if you were a foreigner coming into the United States, going through the South, collecting data on pitmasters. And then you published a book on all of those recipes. And the credit that you gave was like Billy's ribs. And that person didn't get any money or a last name credit. Yeah, it's it, when it, it gets to be really, really tricky when you're not actually attributing recipes. It, it's a Rick. It's a important topic. We can't really unpack it all in this conversation, but I understand what you're saying, and I, I think um, it's it's a tricky topic. Um, I think your book is very different from those from those two authors that we yeah. spoke about, and I think our our listeners should check out the book. and And if they're fans of Kennedy or Bayless, yours should be on the shelf right next to it, right? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I mean, I have the utmost respect for both and I, I have a lot of their books. It's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think I think we're also at a time period now where cookbooks are about, you know, or uh, the reflection of the author, particularly the books now that were written during the pandemic. I love the books that are that are out right now because they're just packed with the stories of people in lockdown and, you know, they're, they're cooking their way through their books, but it changed because of what was going on in the universe. And I think those are the stories that I really like to, to read about. I want to ask you about your podcast, Borderline Salty with Carla Lally Music. It's a really fun listen. I've, I've checked out a few episodes. Um, and you're, you're taking, uh, an approach where you're taking, uh, listener questions. Have you guys been stumped yet by a question? Not really. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like luckily between the two of us, we've probably done just about everything. Um, and it's it's so much fun. Like I just love, you know, I love talking to fans. And, you know, we this is this is what we do, right? This is what we've always done. You always get the DMs like, what happened with this? Or why is that happening? And, you know, so now it's just in podcast form. And it's fun to interact with people. And, you know, it like... It's, it's, it's work, but it's not work. Like we sit together and we laugh for, you know, a couple of hours a week. And it's just, it's like, it's the most fun I think I've ever had doing anything that I've gotten paid for. It's a great show. And I, I, the music's good too. Nice music. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if there was a book project you could work on without the burden of a budget or time, meaning you had endless money wow. and endless time, what would that book be, Rick? I would love to do a book on festivals and the foods that are attached to them. Like so many festivals around the world, but, you know, like as I was traveling through Mexico, you you run into these like little or even huge festivals and there's always a dish or things associated with the celebration of that festival. And like exploring the history and why why are you eating this? Like, you know, and I think that would just be it's so beautiful, like that the process of discovery, the process of like learning all these foods and traditions. I mean, Thailand alone, yes. the festival seasons there is amazing. Yes. It's incredible. Oh. 
I love this idea, Rick, and I hope you can go there and, and, and travel 30,000 miles to like all the festivals of the world. That's my next pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Martinez, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.